Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The Max Quick series is now available as ebooks in the iPhone App Store. Twenty one Old Friends Ian fiddled nervously with the green ring on his hand. He and Max were aboard the Peking with Dunkirk. It was around four AM, the morning after the disaster of the ball. He'd explained what had happened to Dunkirk, including how Romani had been slain by Madworth. I'm a simple man, Dunkirk breathed. All the things ye tell me sound like so much fancifulness. Yet of course I know you're speaking the truth. But in the end, if you tell me there's trouble and you need a place to hole up for a bit, well, that's all I really need to know. One of the ship's crewmen came knocking and whispered something to Dunkirk. Dunkirk whispered back in annoyance. You really do need to do something about him, sir. The crewman suddenly barked at Dunkirk. Max and Ian both looked up, startled by the defiant tone of the crewman. Dunkirk and the man locked eyes for a moment, and then Dunkirk nodded quickly and the man left. Then the captain turned to Max and Ian. What? Dunkirk said, noticing their shocked expressions. I don't want a bunch of yes-men in my crew. I want them telling me what I need to know, not filling my ears with only what I want to hear. What's wrong? Max asked. Oh, it seems we've got an odd one loitering on the pier. Dunkirk growled in annoyance. Max stood in alarm. Had Madworth somehow tracked him here? Stealthily, they crept to the porthole in Dunkirk's cabin and pulled the shade slightly back. Max breathed in relief. It was Faliero. He stood there in his tuxedo and top hat, stroking his pointed black beard, waiting patiently as if he were content to simply stand there for an eternity. Some of the men on deck hollered at him to leave, but he wouldn't budge. Faliero stubbornly ignored the crew as if they were merely the breeze. It's all right. We know him, Max breathed in relief. He's one of ours. Can we invite him down? Dunkirk nodded and shouted up to the deck. A moment later, Faliero smiled graciously and bowed low to someone on the deck. Within minutes, he entered the cabin. Faliero, Max said as he entered. Come in. Master Quick, Faliero said quietly. I take it you are unharmed. Max nodded stiffly. I'm fine. How about you? Feliero shrugged and sighed. <sighs> My heart aches for Europa, but that is all. Max nodded and their eyes met in understanding. After a moment, Max said, Feliero, Gaspar, look, I owe you an apology. I thought for sure that you were the traitor. It was just that... But Feliero waved his words away. No, Max... Truly, it is I who owe you a thousand apologies. I accused you because of your uh, parentage. Max nodded. Well, it seems then we were both in the wrong. Feliero's eyebrow went up as he suddenly sat. Uh, yes, so it would appear. How in bloody hell did you find us? Ian suddenly blurted out. Feliero snorted a laugh. I had you followed the first time you came here. Max started in alarm, but then Feliero guessed his thought and said quickly, 
No, no, no. I did not send the Michelle. She does not know about this sheep. I sent a man I use sometimes for some things. Someone who knows nothing of the house and its business. Ah, and you guess this is where I'd return after the ball, Max finished. Faliero nodded. But of course, it was the only place that made a sense. Dunkirk coughed suddenly, and Max strained. Oh, I'm sorry. Captain Dunkirk, this is Gaspar Faliero. Dunkirk's eyes widened for a moment. Not the magician, he said. Faliero actually laughed. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid I was. Or I am. I am the same man, yes. Dunkirk laughed and clapped his hands. Wheeling Lords of Thunder! Gaspar the Great himself, sitting in my cabin, and you're friends with Max. Ian let out a clipped laugh. Don't sound so surprised, Captain. Max and I, we roll like that. Max laughed, more at their confused faces at the expression than anything else. Still, the laughter felt stilted in his chest. It died quickly, still chilled by the raw shock of the events of the ball. Gaspar, Captain Dunkirk is a... Well, a very old friend, it seems. My younger self and he apparently know each other quite well. Yes, so Europa told me, Faliero trilled. Well, sir, it is a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Faliero shook the captain's hand and then pulled a coin from his ear and handed it to him. Dunkirk roared with delight. That's amazing! How'd you do that? Faliero waved the praise away with a smirk. Ian rolled his eyes. Do some more, Dunkirk pleading like a child, almost jumping up and down. Faliero actually smiled. Perhaps later, Captain. Your hospitality is welcome, and I will do what I can to repay it. As it is, my heart is still heavy for the death of Europa, and I cannot engage in such frivolity for long. Max nodded. His heart was heavy as well. Gaspar, how did you first meet Madame Romani? Max asked. Faliero looked up mildly startled. I never told you? No, Ian replied sulkily. He used to hate us, remember? You're always busy trying to stick red-hot shoes on our feet. Faliero snorted. Ah, yes, well, for that I apologize again. But as to uh, Europa, ah, that is a tale. He stroked his pointed black beard for a long moment and then said, You see, uh, in my youth... Uh, I spent many years traveling far and wide, studying and performing magic as an illusionist. I quickly rose to the top of my craft, even having several audiences with the crowned heads of Europe, I'll have you know. Gaspar the Great, I was called. Your friend, Mr. Dunkirk, seems to have heard of me during this time. Master magician and illusionist. And uh, always, I would meet other illusionists in any city I visited. Trading ideas to, say, make an escape more spectacular, or give the impression that one was flying, or that one's body was divided up among several boxes. But when my tour swung through India, I chanced to meet a fakir, a brother illusionist, or so I thought. His name was Baba Daga. I watched as he threw an ordinary rope into the air. To my amazement, it stayed put. Forming a straight line from the ground to a point several stories up in the air. I looked for wires or some other support inside the rope itself, you know, the usual dreck. But I could discern nothing of the sort, and was astonished. He then beckoned the boy over and bade him to climb the rope. The boy did so, and when he reached the top of the rope, the boy vanished. 
I was dumbfounded. You must understand. There was absolutely nowhere the boy could have gone. There was nothing but open sky at the top of the rope. This uh, was, of course, the uh, fabled and legendary Indian rope trick. My mind raced, trying to comprehend how I would personally have accomplished such an illusion. How it would work. Uh, I would have used a complex contraption uh, involving a box of some kind, the mirrors, probably a trap door in the stage, or a compartment in the box itself. I would certainly have never been able to create a vanishing illusion in the open air. It boggled the mind. Babadaga smiled. You do not know how I accomplished this, he said. And I was uh, desperate to appear clever in his eyes, you know. Professional rivalry and all. I rattled off some absurd theory about how he had evidently constructed some apparatus of mirrors and glass upon the scaffolding above us that was not visible to the naked eye. He laughed uproariously and shook his head. The more I tried to explain, the more he laughed. I felt like a fool. Then he invited me to climb the rope myself. I was dumbfounded. Any of the magicians I knew would never permit such a close inspection of the magical apparatus. I gripped the rope. It was like a steel column. I easily climbed it, finding that it supported my weight without so much as a shiver. As I reached the top, I was astonished to see a blurred shimmering that the top of the rope disappeared up into. I reached into that blur and found that my own hand disappeared from view. I pulled it out immediately, petrified, and almost let go of the rope with my other hand. There was some kind of rift, a hole in reality at the top of the rope. It was then that I knew. This was a Noah Treek. This was not an illusion. This was something else. I did not dare anything further. <laughs> Shaking with fright, I climbed back down the rope and stood before Baba Daga. He only smiled and said, Now you know. Some magic is real. On the spot, I begged him to teach me, to take me on as his apprentice. He readily agreed, having, for some reason, on his part, interest in teaching a white man. He found it immensely amusing that I had devoted so much of my life already to falsifying magic, rather than the study of the real thing. It was a source of endless laughter, and he asked me again and again to describe the details of the various illusions and the intricate apparatus we constructed to produce them. It would have been much simpler just to perform the real magic, I think, he would say, shaking his head. In any event, I began my tutelage under Baba Daga. He began to instruct me in much of what you already know, that the universe is an illusion which he called Maya, it is comprised of a thought, not matter. That there is a fundamental interconnectedness to all things. Everything is one, and one is everything. He told me of the dream time, how to bend the world with a clear mind of focus and intent. And as my abilities grew, when my strong eye opened, and I began to be able to see, I found that with frightening regularity I would glimpse strange objects in the heavens, which I would later know to be sky chambers. I ran to Baba Daga, asking him what they were. Oh, the Vimanas, he said, shrugging them off as though they were uninteresting. They were always buzzing about. Max interrupted him. There were Nuberians in India? Feliero laughed. Of course there were, and many of them. There were several nests, most of them underground. The locals called them Nagas and took them for granted. 
Are they still there now? Max asked. Probably, Ferriero replied. After a time, I became used to them, and then as distinctly uninterested in them as Baba Daga. How could that be? Ian asked. I would have thought that you would have wanted to learn more about them. It was not because the Naga were uninteresting. It was because what I was learning about the Dreamtime was so much more interesting. The Naga were a sideshow curiosity, no more. The fact that I could see them in their flying machines now signified only that there were more mysteries in the world that I would plumb, that I was making progress in my training. As the years passed, I became more adept with the dream time. As my focus and intent became clearer, I found I could move very, very fast, a lightning blur. I could levitate for short periods. I could perform feats of extraordinary strength, even that of twenty men. I could even sometimes pick up stray thoughts, but these things all came hard to me. I was a slow learner, unlike Mademoiselle Laveau, who was born with these abilities. No, I struggled and struggled and progressed painfully, but progress I did. One day I took out my old bag of magic apparatus again. It had been years since I had even thought of them. My old trick card deck fell into my hand. It suddenly occurred to me that although the deck was shaved, I no longer needed to use this to my advantage. Why, I knew just by looking at the deck where every single card was. I could even cause the cards to move where I willed within the deck. I did so presently. The King of Hearts appeared on top. Then I caused it to switch places with the Three of Spades. I laughed at how simple it was for me now to do these things. I, who once had so diligently practiced the trickery of falsifying such occurrences... Baba Daga's laughter at me all those years ago suddenly made a lot more sense. The painful and meticulous forgery of the bending of the dream time actually was more work than the real thing. It wasn't magic, Ian said with a wicked twinkle in his eye. In India? No, more likely it was bovine intervention. Max just looked at him. Shut up, Ian. You know, bovine, you know, cows, sacred cows. Yeah, I get it. Not that funny. Gaspar, please continue before I beat Ian to death. Valero stared at them in incomprehension for a moment and then resumed. I threw the cards into the air and caused them to whirl about me for a moment. A dervish of diamonds, a hurricane of hearts, and then with a thought, ordered them perfectly by rank and sweet into a deck in my outstretched hand. And I thought to myself, I am now a real magician. No more pathetic trickery. No more sleight of hand and thumb tips and misdirection. No more pedestrian patter. Those were for the forgeries, con artists and pretenders. My top hat really was a portal to different dimensions. My deck of cards, a pack of miracles. And that is when the thought struck me. I could become a real magician, pretending to be an illusionist. The illusion would be that I was performing illusions. That would be my new sleight of hand, concealing my abilities while displaying them before audiences and colleagues. This was an exciting thought to me. I ran at once to Baba Daga and told him that I planned to return to Europe to stun in a maze under the cloak of illusion. But he was a troubled. He thought that I was wasting all that he had taught me, that these abilities were meant for greater things than paltry entertainment. But I would not be dissuaded. Though he was saddened, Baba Daga bid me farewell and told me that uh, this must be my path, my karma, and I would uh, eventually learn from it what my true purpose was. In this he was right. 
For when I returned to Italy and began readying a show to astonish the world and make me a magician unparalleled in history, I quickly lost my enthusiasm. The world hadn't changed. But I had. As I practiced my act, it depressed me. It cheapened what I had become, and I felt it. I could feel it with each illusion of an illusion that I created. So, before performing my new show even once, I closed down rehearsals. Some who had seen my practices thought I was mad. It would have been a show to easily surpass Houdini. Of course, I couldn't tell them the real reason for my withdrawal. I set off into the world, the vagabond, in search of a purpose to discover if I could some way to use my abilities that was worthwhile. And that, well, that, of course, was when I met Madame Europa Romani. She had had a vision, she said, a festering sword that was forming in the heart of the dream time, a blackness. She did not know what it was, but she knew where it could be found, a New York City. It was a danger so great that it would someday engulf the entire world. She was seeking others who shared her talents to go and combat this nameless dark, to tear it out by the roots before it formed a grip so intertwined and interwoven with the fabric of reality that one could not be removed without destroying the other. When I heard what she was saying, I knew instantly this was my karma. Everything that had happened to me had happened for this reason. This was my path. Everything made sense. I had become a real magician for this purpose. They were all silent for a long moment. The fact that Feliero had finally shared his story touched Max's heart in a way that he hadn't expected. It's time to shut the machine down, Max said. We can't wait anymore. We have to make the attempt. This is why you became a real magician. This is why we came back to 1912. We can't wait another day. Faliero nodded wearily. Yes. Finally, Max thought. I find that now, now I am inclined to agree with you. That a miserable device must be smashed. So Europa's life will not have been in vain. Her life was not in vain, regardless of what we do about the machine, said a new voice. They all jumped in surprise. Dr. Carlos Gustav stood in the doorway. Dunkirk leapt to his feet in alarm, but Max waved him down. It's okay, Jonas. He's cool. We know him too. Feliero eyed him. Dr. Gustav, what a pleasant surprise. But uh, how did you find us? Gustav smiled slightly as he entered the room and sat. <laughs> Why, I followed you, Gaspar. You followed the me? Faleiro repeated in annoyance, as if this were impossible. Yes, Gustav replied, eyes twinkling with a secret. I have not taught you everything I know, Gaspar. Faleiro fumed in annoyance. <laughs> Some secret hideout we've got going here. Dr. Gustav, Max said. Carlos, listen, we're going after the machine. Are you with us? Gustav bowed his head. It would seem we have little choice now. Yet, Europa... His voice caught for a moment, but he forced himself to finish the thought. Europa herself was defeated by Madworth. How will we succeed where she failed? As she loved you, you know, Ferriero said suddenly. 
Gustav and Faliero locked in tense gazes for a long, awkward moment. Some unspoken taboo between them had just been broken. Oh, she's a dead now, so I can say it aloud. The world can know for all I care, Faliero said. I was in love with her, yes. Of course I was. You knew it. But she did not love me. She loved you, Carlos. Gustav stared at him for a long moment. She loved us both, I think, in her way. But if you think she was in love with me, perhaps. But if so, she did not say anything to me about it. Oh, but she did, with her eyes, Faliero whispered. There was a passion in her eyes for you that was not there for any other. It was clear to me, and I thought you should know, if you did not already. Gustav's eyes misted. He mutely nodded his head at Faliero with what was clearly deep-felt thanks. Yes, Gustav said finally, answering Max's question. If you go to attack Madworth to tear apart the machine, then I am with you for the attempt, though it may mean all of our deaths. Max nodded grimly. Good. Well, that's four of us, anyway. Five, said another voice, standing in the doorway. Sambava. Bloody hell, Ian exclaimed. Is there anyone who doesn't know about this place? Johnny Siren will be here next. Sambava laughed, his broad and generous face full of serene, clean joy. Then let him come. Dunkirk had evidently stopped panicking with each new arrival. He stayed seated this time. Max, you tell me when one of these folks who keep showing up are not one of yours. Max smiled and nodded and then turned to Sambava. Well, five it is then. We're all that's left of the house. Well, except for Michelle. She'll be there, you know, fighting for Madworth. And you all realize that if we go to destroy the machine, that we're probably going to have to fight her and possibly kill her. Gustav's face darkened. She betrayed Europa, who was a mother to her. And she betrayed us all by planting that book in the House of the Hidden Hand. She's made her choice, so now I will make mine. And the you, Max, how do you feel about this? Valero asked. I know there was... Forgive me, but there is no time for discretion. There was something between you and Michelle. Me? I'm fighting her, Max answered without hesitation. Anything there was between us died with Romani. I'm with Gustav. The machine is coming down. If Michelle gets in the way, well, that's her choice, not mine. Simbaba and Faliero nodded. Then Faliero turned to Simbaba and said gleefully, then Faliero turned to Sambava and said gleefully, Hey, wait a minute. Did you follow Carlos here? Sambava grinned. I did. Faliero crossed his arms and looked triumphantly at Dr. Gustav. You did not, Gustav protested. I did. I picked you up on Broadway, Sambava explained. After I checked in on Vadim and Vanya, I concealed my presence from you on four separate occasions. You looked directly at me but you did not see me. Gustav fumed, going over it in his mind, but he couldn't figure out how he'd allowed himself to be tailed. Well, <laughs> at least we're all here, Max said, regardless of who tailed who, so let's figure out... But then he stopped and hunched over in excruciating pain. Sambaba, Gustav, and Feliero also clutched their stomachs as if they were going to be sick, their faces contorting in pain. It was back again. Reality rippled and warped with the distortion of bad energy. 
Fear, pain, madness, sickness, and hate all burbled and yawned from the walls around them. What is it? What's wrong? Dunkirk yelled, jumping to his feet. That's the Nubarians, Ian growled. Just wait, they'll be okay in a minute. But what's happening to them? Dunkirk asked Ian. It's a machine, Ian replied. Waves of agony pounded through Max. He could barely even hear Ian speaking. The intensity of it was much greater than ever before. This was ten times as bad, possibly worse. They're uh, sort of extra sensitive, Ian explained. That's why they're affected and we're not. Or rather, Max says we're affected also, but we just don't know it consciously. After ten minutes of grueling horror, it finally subsided. Max, Feliero, Gustav, and Sabava fell to the floor in relief, gasping for air as if they'd been suffocating. Dunkirk barked for fresh drinking water. When Max regained his breath, he panted, I think that was... That was Madworth's way of telling us to stay home today. A few moments and several glasses of water later, they had all more or less recovered. When Ian felt that they were mentally present again, he said, I've been thinking about that machine. You know, what it is, what it does. Why it does that to all of you. Okay, so if you go down deep enough into the pixels of the universe, down below the quantum level, below muons and quarks and neutrinos... There's really nothing except a dream, right? That's what you're all always saying. Gustav nodded. Well, I think the machine is something that operates directly on that dream level. It's a, it's a dreamtime device or something. It's, it's like dreamtime technology. Max nodded. And that's why those of us attuned to the dreamtime get sick. The machine disturbs us when it's turned on, makes us ill. Exactly, Ian nodded. It's poisonous somehow. It generates a sort of psychic, toxic waste. Max thought about this and then added, And it needs children. They put children inside of it. It feeds off them. It's almost like you're feeling their pain, Ian said. You know, when you all get sick like that, the machine is a transmitter for fear. But the why, Felero asked. What do the Nibirians gain from that? Maybe, Ian said. Maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe it's the Archons who gained something. After all, they were the ones who designed the machine, right? Yes, Gustav replied, picking up the thread. We've always assumed that the Nuberians were creating some kind of weapon, a way to get back to Nibiru. But maybe that's not it at all. Maybe the machine does something for the Archons. But why would the Nuberians bother to build it at all? Sambava asked. They're not in the habit of charity. They must have cut a deal, Ian said, snapping his fingers. Madworth must have some sort of bargain going with the Archons. She delivers the machine, and they do some favor for her. That must be it. But there's something else that bothers me, Ian said. What's that? Max replied. Well, Michelle. She was a spy, so Madworth knew exactly where to find the House of the Hidden Hand all this time. And it also follows that she knew where this Max Quick was she was trying to kill off. So, why didn't the Nuberians attack months ago? You know, just wipe the house out. Actually, I think we can assume Madworth was planning an attack, Gustav replied. Don't forget that she sent an advanced scout into the house through that book. His visit was very likely a prelude to an all-out assault. The scout was probably making sure the book truly penetrated the house before sending legions of centurions through. That makes sense, Max added. 
Once we dispersed, Madworth was pretty interested in finding out where we'd all gone to. She was actually worried she couldn't find us anymore. That's why she was meeting with Siren. She wanted him to figure out where we were. Yes, but why did she wait? Ian persisted. It still doesn't explain that. It could be that the Michelle was not a traitor for very long, Fellero offered. Maybe just a few weeks, uh, maybe a day. Perhaps she even planted the book the very day it was discovered. Ian shook his head. I don't know. Something still doesn't feel right. It's like Madworth was holding back for some reason. Oh, maybe someone was holding her back. Maybe even the Archons. Ian paused for a moment and then added, Maybe she was under orders not to attack. Now you're being paranoid, Max replied. We know Madworth had people trying to kill me. If she knew where I was hiding, I'm sure I'd have heard about it. Well, this is all academic, gentlemen, Gustav intervened. Instead of speculating further, I suggest we go simply ask Mrs. Madworth herself. I don't know about all of you, but I've been up all night and could hardly be expected to go to sleep now. So what do you say? Shall we pay a visit to a certain nursery on Bleecker Street before the sun rises? We can take down the Nuberians, destroy the machine, and be back in time for breakfast. I'll have it ready and waiting, Dunkirk said with a broad smile. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this Podio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>